Ranger. Gunsmoke, starring James Arness as Matt Dillon. Here's O. Henry's famous Robin Hood of the Old West, the Cisco Kid. Valley Days. Yes, this is Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library, and I'm Al Scherzma. And that was a medley of themes of TV westerns that were on the air in the fall of 1955. I think they all introduced themselves pretty well, with the exception of Back in the Saddle Again, which is the theme song of the Gene Autry show. Television of the 1950s and 1960s is known for its westerns, and there were quite a few, though 1955 is not necessarily a banner year. Besides the ones whose theme songs we just heard, there was Frontier, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, and The Roy Rogers Show. And it wasn't too long before this, late 1954, early 1955, that Davy Crockett starring Fess Parker appeared on the Disneyland series, which got all the kids interested in owning coonskin caps. Sometime in the next year or so following this episode, Davy Crockett reappeared on the Disneyland series. So there was plenty of Western shows, motifs, themes around in October of 1955. But why even bring all this up? After all, didn't Hitchcock say this in a 1964 interview? Now, people have said to me, uh, and this is where the, the accuracy bothers me, people say to me, Mr. Hitchcock, why don't you make more costume pictures? I say for a very simple reason. Nobody in a costume picture ever goes to the toilet. Now, that means that uh, I don't, there's not possible to get any detail into it, just as much as uh, people say, why don't you make a Western? And my answer is, well, I don't know how much a loaf of bread costs in a Western. I've never seen anybody buying chaps in a Western or being measured or buying a 10-gallon hat. And uh, this is sometimes where the drama comes from for me. A, a moment of melodrama happening suddenly in a commonplace setting. And that is the most important moment when the man is buying a hat in the store in Bond Street, when the gun is thrust into his ribs. You see, it's the juxtaposition of the norm of the accurate average against the fantasy. And it is fantasy. The ordinary and the extraordinary. Yes, of course. Side by each. Well, that's the point. That's what makes the thing interesting. And here he is in a 1966 interview saying so close to the exact same thing that you have to figure that 
he just had it all memorized at this point. Uh, I don't make them because A, I'm not very good at it, and B, to me, nobody in a costume picture ever goes to the toilet. And the same with the loaf of bread. You see the cost of a loaf of bread in the Western. What is it? I don't know. Nobody seems to know. I've never seen anyone having a tooth out in a Western. They're all superficial, you see. I deal in nightmares, and nightmares have to be awfully vivid. You're very glad when you wake up just as you're about to drop through the trap on the gallows. It's all been so vivid and real to you in the nightmare, so therefore, while I may have a bizarre situation, the treatment of it is very accurate. Mm. So that's what I mean by the Western. And, uh, you know, uh, actually in those days, men wore bowler hats and had big handlebar moustaches. And when I said that's the way I'd like to do a Western, somebody said, oh, you'll ruin the public image of a Western. And, at the risk of belaboring the point, here he is in a 1972 interview with Dick Cavett. Never wanted to make a Western? No. I don't know much about Westerns. Uh, mm. I like to know all the details, you know. It's like costume pictures. I'm no good at costume pictures, and to me, nobody in a costume picture ever goes to the toilet. <laughs> And that spoils it for you? For me, yes, it does. And just in the same way yeah. that I don't know how much a loaf of bread costs in a Western. I see. All right. Well, that answers that. It took him about 10 years, but he finally got a big laugh from some guy in that audience with that going to the toilet line. Okay, well, that's pretty clear. Hitchcock is not interested in doing a Western. But here he is in the introduction to tonight's episode. I should probably explain the sounds you're going to hear before Hitchcock speaks. He has a revolver. He loads it with a single bullet. Spins the chamber. Holds the gun up to his head, but with the barrel of the gun pointing away from his head rather than at his head. He pulls the trigger spins the chamber again, points the gun away from his head once again, and pulls the trigger. That's precisely why I don't care for Russian roulette. I never seem to win. There are two revolvers, such as this, which play a part in tonight's story. It is what you might call a western, although there isn't a horse to be seen. We intended to get horses, but they couldn't remember the lines. So you'll be seeing people instead. The cast is a very small one and threatens to become smaller with every passing moment. You see, two of the characters have threatened to eliminate each other on sight. Now, I'm sure there are some of you who don't want to see them do that. So I suggest instead that you listen to our sponsor's message. So there he said it. It is what you might call a Western. But then again, Hitchcock is only doing the introductions. He is not directing. And it's too bad, actually, with this episode, because, as he also says, the cast is a very small one. So to a great extent, the director becomes one of the characters. I'll get into that a little bit later. So here's Triggers in Leash. First broadcast, October 16th, 1955, starring Gene Barry, Darren McGavin, and Ellen Corby, directed by Don Medford, teleplay by Dick Carr, based on a story by Alan Vaughn Elston. More coffee, Ben? No, thanks. Lemme tell you, Maggie. Them hot cakes of yourn just melt in a feller's mouth. The scene here is Maggie's Rustic Restaurant somewhere in the American West, somewhere in the late 1800s, I assume. You could tell from the sound effect that it's raining outside. The other sound you heard is Maggie pulling on the chain of her cuckoo clock to set it running or to continue it running. It is up on a shelf 
in the middle of the shelf. Also on that shelf, on the far right, is a very large crucifix. On the left are pictures and frames. The two characters you've heard so far are Maggie, played by Ellen Corby, and Ben, played by Casey McGregor. Let's look at Casey McGregor for just a moment, because he's the only one of our four characters who doesn't get billed at the beginning, and he does have the smallest part. Now, if you're a fan of old westerns, you may notice that Casey McGregor looks an awful lot like Gabby Hayes. He also sounds somewhat like Gabby Hayes. This seems to have gotten him a lot of uncredited roles in westerns. He was also in uncredited roles in mysteries in his career. In fact, most of his roles are uncredited. Looking at IMDb, his last appearance is an uncredited role as a townsman in Rough Night in Jericho, a 1967 western starring Dean Martin, George Pappard, and Gene Simmons. Now, Casey McGregor died in 1988 at the age of 84. That's 21 years after his last credit. I have no idea if he retired or just couldn't get any more uncredited roles or what. But that's really about all I have to say about Casey. He does a good job in this episode, what little he has, even though he does tend to sound too much like Abby Hayes. So let's get back to the setup of this episode. As I said, there are only four characters altogether. Three of them get to come and go, but we don't. We get glimpses of a rainy day through a door and through a window, but we don't get to leave Maggie's little restaurant that seems more like a clapboard shack. So what we essentially have here is a stage play, and to make matters worse, we have an essentially static stage play brought about by the nature of the situation, which is going to be two men facing each other anticipating a gunfight with neither one daring to move all that much. So as a director, how do you overcome all this stasis? Well, you introduce a fifth character, one that moves all over within the confines of the stage set, of course, and that is the camera. And since the camera is the eye of the director, essentially, the director essentially becomes the fifth character. And Don Medford, the director, works very hard to keep things moving within the general stasis of the situation. Let's get back to Maggie and Ben for a little bit of exposition, plus an excuse for Ben to exit. The fire's low. You better bring in some wood from the shed, Ben. You're going to keep that stove burning all day? Of course. Sort of silly. Ain't going to have no customers today. Maggie, better be plumb loco. Travel the crossroads in this storm. So there you go. Some guy sounding like Gabby Hayes using the phrase plum loco. Now you know you're in a Western. But it turns out Ben is wrong. Because shortly after he leaves, someone does enter. Gonna leave the door open, Dara? You alone here, Maggie? No customers. Mind if I warm up? Now, that's a silly question. Take off your slicker and sit down. It sounds like Maggie calls him Daryl. It sounds like Daryl at other times in the episode, too. But according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, the character's name is Del, Del Delaney. He's Del also in the short story, though he has a different last name. The other character in the short story has the last name Delaney. In any event, Daryl, or Dell, as I'm going to call him, is played by Gene Barry. Now, all of the people involved in this episode, the actors and director, with the possible exception of Casey McGregor, about whom I know nothing, have adopted stage names. Even the teleplay writer Dick Carr, later in his career, goes by Richard Carr. Gene Barry was born Eugene Class, and he chose his name Barry in honor of John Barrymore. According to Wikipedia, Gene Barry was born in New York City and grew up in Brooklyn, and he exhibited early artistic skills with singing and playing the violin. It's through his singing that he makes his Broadway debut in 1942 in the Sigmund Romberg operetta The New Moon. 
When he makes his first appearance on television in 1950, it is in NBC Television Opera Theater. Then the following year, he appears in his first film, the science fiction film The Atomic City. Later, in 1957, he's in another science fiction film, the little-known but strangely compelling The 27th Day. But it's a third science fiction film for which he's best known, the 1953 film that transplants H.G. Wells's novel From England to California, Byron Haskins' The War of the Worlds, in which Gene Berry plays Dr. Clayton Forrester. If that name sounds familiar to you and you haven't seen The War of the Worlds, it's because Trace Beaulieu adopted that name for his character as one of the Mads on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Ultimately, Gene Barry settles into a television career in which he stars in several successful series. Since I've already established this as the TV themes episode, why not go a little farther with that? Here's the theme song for the first television program in which Gene Barry starred and in which he returns to a Western motif. This version with the lyrics, Bat Masterson. Back when the West was very young, there lived a man named Masterson. He wore a cane and derby hat. They called him Bat, Bat Masterson. The series ran from 1958 to 1961. After that, from 1963 to 1966, Gene Berry starred in... It's Burke's Law. His third well-known TV series was The Name of the Game which ran from 1968 to 1971, and co-starred Robert Stack and Tony Franciosa. Barry won a Golden Globe Award for Burke's Law in 1965, and he reprised the role of Amos Burke when the series came back briefly in the 1990s. He also played Bat Masterson again in a couple of programs in the late 80s and early 90s. By that time, though, he had mostly gone back to the stage, performing in musicals on Broadway. He was nominated for a Tony Award for his performance in La Cage aux Folles. He was also in Watergate the Musical as Richard Nixon. For all of you anthology fans out there, I should mention that Gene Berry appears in the 1980s Twilight Zone episode Time and Teresa Golowitz, based on a terrific short story by Park Godwin. He plays the Prince of Darkness. He appears in an Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode called Dear Uncle George, and he's in one other Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, Salvage. So if you like Gene Berry here, you have a chance to see him right away, because Salvage is the sixth episode of the first season. And I can't move on from Gene Berry without mentioning that he was the first killer in a Columbo episode, Columbo Prescription Murder. Gene Berry died in 2009 at the age of 90. Okay, so back in the episode, Maggie has just told Dell to take off his slicker and sit down when he's asked if he can warm up. Dell moves over to the stove, and the camera moves so that we have an angle from the stove below the stove, showing Dell and Maggie up above. At this point, we're going to start paying attention to what the camera is doing, so this is a perfect time to look at Don Medford. And, what the heck, let's throw Dick Carr in here, too. Don Medford was born Donald Muller. Over a nearly 40-year period of time, 1951 to 1989, he directed over 
75 TV series episodes. He's best known for directing the final two-parter of the Fugitive TV series and the final episode of The Colbys. But he also directed episodes of The Untouchables, The Rifleman, 12 O'Clock High, Dynasty, The FBI, Beretta, and, have to mention it, one episode of David Cassidy, Man Undercover. In the anthology series, he directed 36 episodes of Tales from Tomorrow and five episodes of Twilight Zone, including my favorite Twilight Zone of all time, Death Ship. Other Twilight Zone episodes he directed were A Passage for Trumpet, another great episode, The Man in the Bottle, not so great, The Mirror, not so great, and Death's Head Revisited, a great episode. He directed seven episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock-produced show Suspicion, and he actually directed an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents 80s show, Deadly Honeymoon. But he only directed one other Alfred Hitchcock Presents of the original series, and that one's coming right up, episode five, Into Thin Air. As far as I'm concerned, it's too bad that he didn't do more because he does a great job with this one. And Don Medford died in 2012 at the age of 95. Dick Carr, later Richard Carr, as I said, wrote for a number of TV series during his career. He wrote some Walton's episodes. We'll refer to the Waltons a little bit later. Lots of westerns, like Gunsmoke, The High Chaparral, and The Guns of Will Sonnet. He also directed one of my favorite episodes of the Batman 1966 TV series, the one where the Riddler is making a silent movie. Altogether, he writes three episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next one is Salvage, episode six, which, as I said, stars Gene Barry. Let's get back to the episode. Dell is clearly jittery. He refuses to take his gun off when Maggie asks him to, and he draws it and wheels on the front door when he hears the front door open. It turns out to be Ben returning with the firewood, which he drops and yells, Hey! Dell apologizes. The camera pans following Dell, but then leaves off as Ben crosses to talk to Maggie. Ben tells Maggie she's almost out of kerosene and that if she's going to keep the lights lit all day long because she's expecting possible customers, she's going to need more. She asks him to go into town to get some, and he agrees. The camera moves to show Dell in the foreground, listening as Ben and Maggie talk in the background. So this is going to get Ben out of the picture again. Why did he come back to begin with? Well, first of all, to have that moment with Dell drawing his gun so we can see how jittery he is. Secondly so that Dell can overhear their conversation and he knows what's become of Ben. And thirdly, possibly just to have a little action, somebody actually drawing a gun, because we're not going to get that action later on. Before Ben leaves, though, Dell calls out, Ben. Yeah? I'd be obliged if, uh, if you do a favor for me. Sure thing. When you go back into town, don't mention that you see me out here. It's all right, Ben. All right, I won't mention it. Within the plot of the story, the reason for that is that Dell is clearly trying to avoid someone. Within the plot of the episode, I think it's a device that keeps any other people from interfering with what's going to happen over the next 20 minutes. Maggie starts making breakfast for Dell, and she starts setting the table, which is right smack dab in the middle of the set. They flirt a little bit. And then Maggie is right there, center stage, at the table, when the door flies open again. Morning, Red. Get out of the way, Maggie. Let's look at some of the camera shots here. First we have Red entering, ready to draw. Then we switch to Dell, jumping up from his chair at the stove, ready to draw. Then to Maggie, looking at Red. She turns to look at Dell. We get a shot of Dell. Back to Maggie. She turns to look at Red. We get a shot of Red. Back to Maggie. She looks at Dell. We get a shot of Dell. 
The camera pans down from Dell's face to his gun hand poised over his gun. Then it switches to a shot behind Dell at gun level. We can see his hand. It's shot through the crook of his arm. We see Maggie in the middle, red at the door, the rain behind him. Through all this, they talk. Do what the man says, Maggie. Step back out of the way. Have you two gone loco? You didn't think I'd catch up with you, did you, Delaney? I was hoping you wouldn't, Red. Aye, and it makes sense. First you run away so you won't have to face me. And now here you are hiding behind a female skirts. Move aside, man. Move aside! No, I'm not budging from this spot until you hear me out. Well, I've known you a long time, Dell. I know you're fast with that gun, but I ain't never knowed you to pick a fight. I didn't pick this one either. This buck here said I'm forcing my hand. Oh, now hold on a minute. What you got again, Dell? He's yelling. He'll fight a man when he's liquored up, but not when he's sober. What do you mean by that? I'll tell you what he means by that. He was playing cards last night. This hot-headed coyote has too much to drink. He gets real reckless. I couldn't play with him when I saw a drunk. He was, I decided to quit the game. Aye, you decided to quit when you was ahead. You wouldn't give me a chance to get even, would you? Kid, I could have cleaned you out. You were so drunk, you couldn't even sort your own cards. You mean all this is over a hand of poker? There was more than that. Red-headed buck here objects to my quitting. He gets wild. Starts calling me names I don't like to be called. He tells me to go for my gun. Says he could outdraw me. I would have too. Kid, I could have sent you to Boot Hill for your hand even touched leather. But I get no kick out of killing drunk cowboys. Well, now will you hear him, Maggie? You know what he done last night? He flanged a glass of whiskey in his face. And then, when I was blinded, he hit me in the eye with a bottle. It was a fist, laddie, not a bottle. Fist or bottle, it was still a yellow play. Of all the stupid... Red, you act like you're still liquoring. Maggie, it's best you keep out of this. No, I won't. Dell's right. He could have killed you last night, but he used his head. And now you're mad because you think he made a fool of you at the saloon. Ah, grow up, Red. All right, Maggie. Ask him what he's doing away out here. Aye, I'll tell you what. When he heard this morning that I was gunning for him, he saddled up and he hightailed it right out of town. That's right. I didn't want to kill you last night because you was too drunk. I didn't want to kill you this morning because you was too full of hurt pride. It'd be easy to just leave town for a while. You're a dirty, lying coward. You ain't very bright, are you, kid? All right, I tried. But I'm through trying now. You're sober. It's a fight you want, and you'll get it. Let me talk to him, Dell. It won't do no good, Maggie. Use a little horse sense, Red. Dell done you a favor last night. So you think he made a fool out of you? Well, that's better than shooting you down. If he could have shot me down, I say even drunk, I could outdraw him. Oh, now you know better than that. Why, Dell, here's the best. Maggie! Maybe you could talk him into quitting, but not me. It's too far gone now. All right. Go on. Kill each other. You're both too loco to live. My hand's burning, and a piece of hand's worth more than either one of you wildcats. So now you know the situation. Before we get back to it, let's take a look at the actor playing Red, Darren McGavin. Now, as you can already tell from this scene, Darren McGavin's Irish accent isn't very good. But he's otherwise a terrific actor. He's always been one of my favorites. He was born William Lyle Richardson and he ran away from home at the age of 11, spent his teenage years living in abandoned warehouses in Tacoma, Washington. He was working as a painter at Columbia Studios in 1945 when he won a small role in the film A Song to Remember. This got him interested in acting to the extent that he went to New York and studied it, eventually appearing in The Rainmaker on Broadway. Now, Darren McGavin was right in on the early days of television. He takes over the role of Casey, the lead role of Casey, in the early TV show Crime Photographer based on the radio show, and he starred in other programs of the 1950s. He was Mike Hammer in 79 episodes in 1958 
That's the Mike Hammer theme music. He starred in Riverboat as Captain Gray Holden from 1959 to 1961. And he starred in a series called The Outsider for one season from 1968-1969. A couple of his more memorable roles were as the very nasty drug pusher to Frank Sinatra's drug addict in The Man with the Golden Arm, and as Murphy Brown's father in the TV series Murphy Brown, for which he won an Emmy. But he is best known for two things, playing the father in A Christmas Story, the one who wins the leg lamp, and playing Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Unfortunately, that was not a particularly happy time for Darren McGavin. From what I've read, he wanted the show to be an investigative reporter along the lines of Woodward and Bernstein, seeking out conspiracies, but instead it became sort of a Monster of the Week program, which I think is what it was intended to be, and it's a terrific program. Darren McGavin is great in it, if you like those sorts of things, which I do. But he had expectations that were not met, and I think he was very happy when it ended. In turn, though, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, inspired Chris Carter when he created The X-Files. And as a result of that, Darren McGavin guests on The X-Files, essentially playing Carl Kolchak, though he's an FBI agent, I believe. Now, in the Hitchcock realm, Darren McGavin is in an episode of The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, A Matter of Murder. But he's also in one more Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Cheney Vase. That is episode 13. And it also features, as I mentioned in our last installment, George McCready, who was in episode 2, Premonition. And Darren McGavin died in 2006 at the age of 83. So when Maggie says her ham is burning, she moves over to the stove and the camera follows her there. We get a shot of Maggie at the stove with Dell behind her and Red still at the door. Door still open, still raining outside. It looks like it's about to happen, the showdown, but Maggie is not about to let it happen. All right. Which one's going to be the killer? Which one gets the rope around his neck? What are you jabbering about, Maggie? I'm going to kill this buckle here, fair and square. You're wrong, Red. You're both going to die. And I aim to see to it. I'm a witness. And I'll swear to the first man I see draw his gun. And it'll be murder. And the first man to draw is going to hang. You'll see. So there's a bit of a stalemate. Maggie makes eggs to go along with the ham. Red closes the door with his foot and asks for a place at the table. He hangs his hat on the coat rack without looking at it. Dell decides to eat, too. He grabs a chair without looking, puts it at the same table that Red is at. The camera pans following Dell as he sits so that the table and the two men facing each other fill the whole screen. Hey, now, Maggie. Bring the man his last meal. I'm the one that'll be feeding tonight. You'll be feeding, too. Feeding the buzzards. Two orders, coming up. Now, this is where the commercial came in. And when we come back from the commercial, time has passed and the food is ready. There's a close-up on the plates. 
Then the camera pans back to show Maggie as she walks over to the table. So now we're back to center stage with Dell and Red sitting at the table, but now with Maggie standing between. She serves them and leaves, but this time the camera stays. So both men have their food, but neither one wants to start eating first and give an advantage in the draw to the other. Oh, you ought to be ashamed. Two grown men acting like kids. Both hands on the table. Sure, why not? <laughs> Maggie, cut my ham for me. I'm one-handed today. Cut mine too, Maggie. Big, brave men. All you think about is nerve and how fast you can draw a gun. Oh, Dell here's fast, Maggie. But I'm just a wee bit faster. I'm glad you're gonna be eating red. A man can't talk nonsense when his mouth's full. Why don't you drop your right hand onto your holster and see who's talking nonsense? Why don't you? Why don't you both shut up? If you'd do more thinking than talking, you'd be better off. She was married to a gunfighter, wasn't she? Charlie Ryan. Uh, she's seen fights before then. What she's so upset about? You talking about me? About your husband. Will you leave Charlie out of this? He was a better man than you two put together. I hear tell he had seven notches on his gun. That's right, seven notches. But he had even a bigger score later on. He had 12 wreaths at his funeral. There's some really nice stuff in that moment. First of all, when the men put their hands on the table, the camera pulls in closer. They make little motions at various times, like they're going to go for their guns. I also like that little bit of gossip between Dell and Red, talking about Maggie's husband. It not only gives us a very concrete reason why Maggie is opposed to any sort of gunfight, but it also shows the bond between these two characters, who actually are probably friends. They just can't get over the disrespect they each feel from each other. So they both try to eat. We have a camera shot over Red's shoulder as Dell tries to pick up his fork without looking at it. He ends up picking up a spoon, tries to stab his food with it, which Red finds very funny. Then we have a shot over Dell's shoulder as Red successfully picks up his fork. It becomes almost part of the success of the duel for him to stab his ham and eat with great pleasure. Maggie, however, is fed up with the whole thing, the whole ridiculousness of it. And she says, You can't eat a meal while you stare straight ahead. Which feels like one of those credos of life. But neither man is listening. We get a close-up of Dell drinking his coffee, Red eating his ham. Maggie starts to despair. I couldn't make Charlie listen. I don't see how I can make you. I know what you're thinking of, Maggie. You're thinking it's about time Ben Morgan got back from town. That's silly. I wasn't thinking anything. What about thing? Ben? Ben's doing some handy jobs for Maggie. Went into town to get some kerosene. He ought to be back. <laughs> that moment is interrupted by Red accidentally knocking over his coffee cup, trying to reach for it without looking, causing Dell to laugh and evening them up again in the duel. But Dell's mention of time and the ticking of the clock give Red an idea. Maggie, what time is it by that old clock? A few minutes till noon. And it's a cuckoo clock. I've seen it before. What are you getting at? Just this. Maybe I was wrong when I thought you were so yellow that you'd draw first. Maybe you really were waiting for me. So? So. I don't aim to draw first and wind up with a rope around my neck. Let's begin even. We'll both stand. And then we'll agree that neither of us will draw until that cuckoo bird sticks its neck out of that clock. But when it does, we both hit leather. No, that's crazy. What do you he say, Dell? Makes sense. Nobody draw till the birdie cries. Oh, Aye. finish your meal. At least take some time to think. They don't. They both stand up, still looking at each other, 
facing each other. We get camera shots of Maggie, Dell, Red, the clock, then a long shot of all of them, then Maggie as she looks up, a closer shot of the clock at almost noon, back to Maggie, Red, Maggie looking at Dell, shot of Dell, shot of Maggie, longer shot of Maggie reaching for the shelf. Get away from that clock. If you stop it, I'll kill him anyway. Well, just one favor, that's all. The crucifix. Let me get the crucifix. It's on the shelf of the clock. Charlie gave it to me the day we were married. A wild bullet might hit it. Wild bullet? This might be wild, not mine. Oh, please let me get it. I won't touch the clock. All right, get it, but make it fast. We don't have much time. Maggie grabs the crucifix and crouches in the corner. Now, there's another little moment in Hitchcock's interview with Dick Cavett in which he talks about a barroom brawl in a Western. And he says this. There's nothing more boring than a, a barroom brawl in a Western. What do they do? Break up a lot of furniture and a lot of bottles on the shelf. Okay. But if you took the audience right in and got an impression of a face, a hand, an arm, and feet and everything, you'd involve the audience much closer with it. Well, that's what Don Medford does here. He gives us a close-up of Dell's eyes, then Red's eyes, then Maggie crouched down, and it reminds me of that scene in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, that final scene. It makes me want to play that great Ennio Morricone music from that final scene. That moment of the three-way duel between Blondie and Tuco and Angel Eyes. And the camera moves around, looking at their eyes, looking at their faces, looking at their gun hands, getting ready to draw. And it's almost like Don Medford stole the climactic scene from this episode from Sergio Leone in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. The only problem with that is this episode was made about 12 years before The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So maybe Sergio Leone saw this episode? Probably not. But once Sergio Leone uses those camera shots with The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly and the other westerns he's doing at the time, he sort of defangs Hitchcock's argument about the barroom brawl, which is interesting because Hitchcock made that argument several years after The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So with all of his negative thoughts about Westerns, you almost have to think that Hitchcock wasn't bothering to go see the Westerns of the time. Actually, in most of his interviews, Hitchcock makes it pretty clear that he's not going to any movies of the time. Anyway, here they are, Dell and Red, waiting for the clock. And the clock ticks and ticks. The rain falls outside, and Dell can't stand it any longer. What's taking so long? Peggy. What time is it? Oh, glory be. Oh, thank God. I said, what time is it? It's time to fall on your knees, Red Hillman. Fall down and beg forgiveness. Look at that clock. It stopped. What you talking about? I don't know, but I can't hear no more ticking of the clock. Less than a minute to go when the clock stops. Oh, Red, Dell, think of it. Can't you see? Stand back. Oh, you won't shoot. You can't. The hand of God stopped that clock. I swear I didn't touch it. Sure, it's strange. You both swore you wouldn't shoot until the bird cried. Well, it ain't ever gonna cry. God stopped it. It ain't ever gonna cry again. Del? I'm turning around. I won't shoot.
You're both men of your word. And I heard you both swear you wouldn't draw till that clock reached noon. Well, the good Lord's gonna hold you to that word. Neither one of you can outdraw him. Apparently, Dell and Red agree. They give up the idea of the fight, and they actually decide to ride back to town together, apparently friends again, now that they've gotten past their grudge. Not long after that, Ben returns. He's all fired up because he just saw Dell and Red outside, and he's afraid they're going to fight. Maggie tells him that's not going to happen. Then Ben notices something. Hey, I told you not to move that, Maggie. The last time I fixed this old clock, I told you it wouldn't run unless it was set on the level. I know. I know. Well, dang it, leave things be, or put it on a shelf that don't tilt. There. Did you get the kerosene, Ben? Put it in the shed. Then I better start baking your apple pie. And the camera pans up to the cuckoo clock, just in time. I've saved Ellen Corby for last to honor her character, Maggie, who is the only one in this episode who really does any thinking. She first stops the fight by telling the men that she'll report the one who drew first to the sheriff. Then she comes up with the idea of taking the crucifix off the shelf, stopping the cuckoo clock. It's entirely her doing that Dell and Red don't fire on each other. But of course, being a woman in a male-dominated culture, she can't let them know that. Also, she needs them to think that it was divinely inspired in order to stop the fight, of course. But she can't even let Ben know that. Instead, she silently endures Ben's lecture about how the clock won't work if the shelf is tilting. But that's fine by her. That's all she needs. She's accomplished what she wanted to accomplish. So Ellen Corby was born Ellen Hansen, but she didn't take a stage name as opposed to the other people in this episode. She becomes Corby because she takes her husband's name. She married Frank Corby in 1934. He was 20 years her senior, and he died in 1956, not long after this episode, though they divorced in 1944. She kept her name, Corby, throughout the rest of her life, her stage name. Her main claim to fame in her earlier years was a Best Supporting Actress nomination in 1948 for her role as Aunt Trina in I Remember Mama. But she also shows up in small, uncredited roles in some very well-known movies. For example, she's Miss Davis in It's a Wonderful Life. Now, if you can't place who Miss Davis is, she's one of the townspeople asking for their money at the Bailey Savings and Loan. In fact, she's this one. All right, Miss Davis. Could I have seventeen fifty? <laughs> <laughs> sure, hard. Of course, you can have it. You got fifty cents. <laughs> so that's a pretty cool little moment to have on your resume considering you only have one line. Ellen Corby is in another scene with Jimmy Stewart, this time in a film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. She's in Vertigo, and she plays the clerk at the McKittrick Hotel in this scene. Is there something I can do for you? Yes, you run this hotel? Oh, yes. Oh, would you tell me who has the room on the second floor in the corner, that corner? Oh, I'm afraid we couldn't give out information of that sort. Well, our clients are entitled to their privacy, you know. And, and I do believe it's against the law. Now, like most of the actors in these shows, she's all over 50s and 60s television. But she's best known for a role in a 70s TV series. She's Grandma Walton in The Waltons, for which she won Emmys in 1973, 74, and 75, and a Golden Globe Award. And since I did it for the other television shows we've mentioned, why not play a little of the theme song of the Waltons? In 1977, while still on the Waltons, Ellen Corby suffered a stroke. She returned to the show 
but with impaired speech and movement. So what they did is they said that her character also had a stroke, allowing her to stay on the show, which was a very smart and a nice thing to do. Now, almost all of her final appearances over the subsequent years were in Walton specials. But let's look for a moment at what she's in in our favorite anthology shows. Ellen appeared in the thriller episode, The Girl with the Secret, and in the 1970s, she was in the Night Gallery episode, Fright Night. She is in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, Consider Her Ways, an odd but intriguing science fiction-ish episode. And she is in three more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is Toby, which is in season two, episode six of season two. Ellen Corby died in 1999 at the age of 87. So, my first question about this episode is, what does the title mean? I guess you can sort of figure it out. But let's look at the Alan Vaughn Elston story in which he makes it clear what the title is all about. This story first appeared in the July 1925 issue of Frontier Magazine, so it was presented as a Western, not as a suspense story. I found it in an old copy of Alfred Hitchcock's Fireside Book of Suspense. This is the book I mentioned in a previous episode that came out in 1947. And this was, by the way, the first hardcover book with Hitchcock's name on it. But there were three previous books in paperback. In 1945, the book entitled Suspense Stories Collected by Alfred Hitchcock came out. In 1946, it was Alfred Hitchcock's Bar the Doors. And in 1947, it was Alfred Hitchcock's Hold Your Breath. Now, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, half of the stories in the Fireside Book of Suspense were reprinted from the 1945 Suspense Stories Collected by Alfred Hitchcock. But Triggers in Leash was not one of them. Its sole appearance in a Hitchcock book is here. The Fireside book is the one that, as I noted before, is subtitled Edited and with introductory notes by Mr. Hitchcock. There's a general introduction entitled The Quality of Suspense, in which each story gets a cursory mention. And then there's the introductory notes in front of each story. So what does Hitchcock say about Triggers and Leash? Well, in the general introduction, not much. He lumps it in with some other stories in which he says, The suspense story with the snapper ending long has been one of my especial delights. In this category are T.O. Beechcroft's The Ringed Word, John Metcalf's The Tunnel, Alan V. Elston's Triggers in Leash, and in a very different register, Ross Santee's With Bated Breath. That's the entire mention in the general introduction, and I'm a little surprised that he lumps it in in the category of the snapper ending, because that seems to be the least of its virtues. Here is Hitchcock's introductory note to the story. After Alan Vaughn Elston finished his engineering studies at the University of Missouri, he mined copper in Chile, ran a cattle ranch in the American Southwest, sailored on tramp steamers, adventured in the Northwest, and soldiered in two world wars. It is small wonder, then, that he has been turning out authentic action fiction for the last 22 years. From several favorites among Mr. Elston's stories, I have selected one of his earliest ones, Triggers in Leash, a tale of hatred, rivalry, and tension in a Western setting. Now, the story is essentially the same as the episode, except there's no Ben in it. Since he's mainly there to give Maggie someone to talk to for exposition and to help reveal the twist at the end. Let's get back to the question, though, of what the title means. Well, it's made pretty clear in the story. In fact, it's made pretty clear multiple times. Here's the first appearance of the phrase in the story when Dell and Red first appear. Elston writes They faced each other from door to door. But for the moment, their triggers were held in leash because the portly form of the old Irishwoman was directly in the line of fire. Okay, so it's not exactly like the episode. Maggie is not portly in the episode, and she's not an Irishwoman. But 
Close enough. On the next page, Elston writes this. Old Maggie arranged and rearranged the service on the table. Other women than she might have leaped backward out of the path in which she stood. But Maggie stood her ground, for as surely as she knew that these men must kill each other, she knew that they would not kill her. They were not of nature bad men, gunmen, killers, these two. They were just two who had sworn, she knew not over what silly dispute of fence or water right, to kill the other on sight. Once made, it was the unbreakable code of their range to keep such vows. Men who voiced them must make them good or die, or live beneath the stigma of cowardice. So Maggie Flynn arranged and rearranged the service at the table and held the itching trigger fingers in leash on either side of her. But she knew the subterfuge could serve but for a moment. She could not stand forever between the weapons of death at either door. So now it's become a situation where it's Maggie who is keeping the triggers in leash. She is controlling the trigger fingers. Later in the story, Elston writes, Helplessly and imploringly, she looked again at the crucifix on the left end of the hanging shelf. She clasped her reddened hands toward the emblem of sacrifice and prayed for some inspiration that might leash forever those triggers of hate before her. So now religion enters the picture in a way that it doesn't really quite enter it in the episode. Maggie is literally praying for some answer within the story to keep those triggers and those trigger fingers leashed. And then there's this. And so the two men across the table from each other consumed the meal. A stranger passing might have thought them a pair of comrades at an accustomed dinner of amity. He would not have guessed from the signs above the board that below it ready triggers were in leash, like bloodhounds awaiting the leap to throat. And if that isn't enough, there's one more. Leashed still were the sensitive triggers below, leashed till the final pink pank should hack the leash. The pink pank is the ticking of the clock. And there are lots of references to the clock in the story in ways that there are not in the episode. So in the episode, it almost seems like a bit of a cheat to bring in this business with the clock. Not so in the story. The clock is a central character. Also, I think a central character in the story is religion. Maggie really emphasizes that God has stopped the duel. And Elston writes this, When he turned around, he saw that Del Hart had risen from his seat, was standing with his back toward him, and was dropping his gun belt to the floor. It was a nervy thing for Del to do, but Del was a nervy man. And after all, Red at his worst was not the kind to shoot an unarmed man in the back. Now, with the crucifix of his own inherited faith before his eyes and the recent proof of its power stirring his mind, he was far from at his worst. So the ending is similar. The twist is the same. The two men don't leave at the end because we don't get the nice payoff of the cuckoo actually chiming. Instead, they sit down to eat. And the story finishes with, She passed to the shelf and replaced the marble crucifix. The hanging board tilted back to the normal degree of levelness from which it had been tipped, but the clock, once stopped, remained with motionless hands, and the bird within chirped no more. I like the ending of the episode better. There is one other Alan Vaughn Elston story that is adapted for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It is a story entitled The Belfry, and it will be episode 33 of season one. And Alan Vaughn Elston died in 1976 at the age of 89. Let's see what Mr. Hitchcock has to say at the end of this episode. That was disappointing, wasn't it? Still, you will be happy to learn that both Dell and Red did die eventually, that very day, in fact. Food poisoning. Maggie's heart was in the right place. She just wasn't a very good cook. And now, let us hear a word or two from our sponsor. A word or two, or three, or four, five, six, seven. Jacqueline Pye, the pie lady, is writing blogs about each Alfred Hitchcock episode in order at 
pyladyanthology.wordpress.com. And she says, Triggers in Leash is one of my least favorite episodes. It has very little action, and it has no death in it at all, save for the ham in Maggie's frying pan. I love that line, actually. And I can sort of see her point. It is not a particularly good episode if you're looking for a gunfight or for action. Even Hitchcock says it's disappointing. But it does have two things that some episodes don't. One is that uneasy feeling that comes from not knowing how this situation could possibly end. And the other is some genuine suspense. You can credit the actors for that. There's some terrific performances here, particularly Ellen Corby's, and also Don Medford's imaginative direction. As I said, Don has to take this static situation and create suspense. He does it with camera movement, camera angles, close-ups, those shots back and forth of Dell's eyes, of Red's eyes, long shot, close-up. When you start to dissect it, diagram it, it starts to look pretty phony and pretty silly, but it does work to ratchet up the suspense. And there's suspense in the situation of these two men facing each other, not daring to even look down at their food, their hands twitching, those moments where they reach ever so slightly for the gun. You can't deny the suspense of the whole situation. Unfortunately, we judge a lot of these episodes by the twist, by the payoff. And the twist here, as I've said, seems like sort of a cop-out. It's nothing Maggie plans, because she's not the one that suggests that they draw when the cuckoo comes out of the clock. And it's not really set up for us beforehand that the clock will stop ticking if the shelf goes askew. So it feels a little bit like a deus ex machina. So on that level, I agree with the pie lady. It's not one of my favorite episodes either. But there is so much good stuff in it that I would still recommend you watch it just to see how it's all put together. Now, you'll recall in the story, Alan Vaughn Elston gives us the line, she clasped her reddened hands toward the emblem of sacrifice and prayed for some inspiration that might leash forever those triggers of hate before her. And, of course, her prayer is answered. When Red suggests using the cuckoo clock as the starting gun for the duel, playing into Maggie's hands, that feeling that her prayers are answered is even heightened. Remember, she doesn't pray for God to step in. She prays for inspiration to solve the dilemma. And Red's suggestion is God's answer to her prayer as she gets that inspiration. And that inspiration comes by using the very symbol of Christianity itself, the crucifix. To me, the best line in the television episode is when Maggie says, well, the good Lord's going to hold you to that word and neither one of you can outdraw him. The whole showdown, after all, is all about pride, being disrespected sort of thing that still goes on today. Neither of these men really want to kill the other. They go off to town together at the end, after all. But neither feels able to derail the train they're riding on until they're given the excuse of a miracle, of some higher power telling them not to go through with it. They don't even have to believe. They just need a reason beyond them and beyond Maggie to stop it. So, is this episode about the power of religion? Or is it about giving religion power? Or is it both? In the story, Maggie prays for inspiration and receives it. In the episode, she takes advantage of religion to force the nonviolent ending she's looking for. Then, of course, at the end, Hitchcock makes a mockery of the whole thing. Not only does he tell us that this was a disappointment, but he tells us both men died anyway, inadvertently poisoned by Maggie, who worked so hard to save them. Bringing it all back down to earth, taking the Almighty out of it, and turning the woman from the hero into the villain. Not that I think that that's the intent, but even so, whatever messages there are in these stories are often subverted at the end by Hitchcock and Allardyce, plying the humor of the macabre, which is a message in itself. If you would like to write to me about these podcasts, I'd love to hear from you. My email address is sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E. R-D-S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. Please put Hitchcock somewhere in your subject line. If you're looking for this episode, you can find it on the season one set of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, available at the Ann Arbor District Library.
Also available at the library on DVD are The Waltons, It's a Wonderful Life, Vertigo, Kolchak the Night Stalker, and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Next time, Episode 4, Don't Come Back Alive, starring Sidney Blackmer. 511, 512, 513. Thank you, sir.